right, good morning, church. Uh, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody today. I hope all of you have been blessed this week, and I hope you've had a chance to share the gospel with somebody. Remember, that's why we're here, to make much of Jesus, to let the world know that Christ has come to save them, and I'm grateful to be part of a church that takes serious the call to the Great Commission. We're in chapter 20 of the book of 2 Samuel this morning, if you want to turn there, and we're continuing to look at the life of David, and we are really... Uh, finishing up this story of the life of David. There's a few chapters left to go, uh, but one of the things that's so important about this week and, and the chapters that we're looking at is this two chapters, and you say, oh my gosh, we're going to be here all day. No, we're going to get through it, and I'm going to preach really fast. Uh, but these two chapters in the book of 2 Samuel, they give us a great understanding of really what the kingdom of King David is like at this moment in his life. I don't want you to ever forget that the purpose of the Scripture, everything in the Bible, it points to Jesus. When you look at the Old Testament Scriptures, we have what we would call these heroes of the faith. We have these people that we look at their lives, and we almost look at them like they're, they're saviors. We look at them, uh, I'm sure, like the children of Israel did, like these were the people that God sent to help them, to save them. But the reality is we only have one Lord and we only have one Savior. If you look in the Word of God, you see men like Moses. Moses was a man of great faith. The Bible says there was not a man like him before, not a man like him after, that had this great faith in this close walk with God that Moses had. Remember, Moses was the one that went up onto the mountain and got to have a glimpse of his glory. Moses was the great lawgiver that was able to tell the children of Israel that if they were going to be in a relationship with God, they had to obey the laws of God. And what we found that even the great lawgiver, guess what? He couldn't keep the law, could he? The great lawgiver, the one that you would think if anybody would have gone into the land of promise, you would have assumed it would have been Moses. After dealing with the hard-headed children of Israel, after all that he endured, you would think if anybody would see the promised land, it would be Moses. But we remember he lost his cool. Remember that he sinned against the Lord. And remember that the Lord told him, while you may be able to see it from a distance, you won't be able to go into that land. We see in the book of Judges, we find that there were these moments of turmoil, these moments of trouble in the life of Israel where they were in this pattern of continual sin. And God would raise up judges and they would go and they would be able to save the people from the marauders, from those that were coming into the kingdom. And they were trying to steal and kill and destroy all that God had given the children of Israel and these judges, you would think that after every one of these judges was raised up, that the people of God would learn their lesson, right? And that they would stop sinning. But we find that that wasn't true, that after one judge, they needed another judge. And after that judge, they needed another judge. And we came into the time of the kings. If you remember, they forsook God when they wanted a king. If you remember, God said to them, listen, you have a king. Why do you need an earthly king? And their answer was, well, everybody else around us has an earthly king. They have an army. They have a war chest. They have all these things, and we don't have it. And God kept trying to tell them, but you have me. But they wanted a king, and so they chose their first king. And remember, they chose very unwisely. He looked like a king. He acted like a king, but he didn't have the heart that King David had. And after Saul fell away, we see that God raised up a king. He said, this is the one that I want to sit on the throne of Israel because he has a heart like mine. And in the beginning of his ministry, in the beginning of his reign, you would look at King David almost like a Messiah figure that here is a man that's going to lead Israel into peace. Here is a man that is going to, to fulfill all that God has promised. And then we saw David and Bathsheba. Then we saw the death of Uriah. And out of that moment, we were reminded that, you know what? We cannot put our hope in man, can we? Folks, if you're putting your hope in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, you're putting your hope in the wrong thing. You're putting your hope in the wrong person. And we see in the life of David that out of that moment, that decision that he would have an affair, out of that decision that he would murder 
Bathsheba's husband, even though his sins were forgiven, you see that the kingdom of David, it's beginning to fracture. It's beginning to fall apart. When we left last week's chapter, they were coming out of a civil war where David's own son was trying to take the throne from him. He died. It was the fourth son to die after the sin of David and Bathsheba. We remember that the Lord told King David, you know what, the sword it's not going to depart from your family. And that's what we're going to see the evidence of. That's what we're going to see displayed today. These two chapters are like a microcosm. They give us a snapshot of what is happening at the end of David's life, at the end of David's reign. And it is a great reminder to us that there's someone greater who is coming than Moses, someone who is greater that is coming than Joshua, than Abraham, than all of the judges, than all of the kings, than all of the prophets, that we need desperately a Messiah. I love Teddy Roosevelt's quotes. He has some really good ones. Many of you have probably heard this one, but it's really true, and it's true of David's life, and it's true of our life as well, that if you could kick the person in the pants who is responsible for most of your trouble in life, he said you wouldn't be able to sit down for a month. Is that a statement not true? That most of the issues that we face in life, we want to blame others, we want to blame God, but the reality is that many, many, many times in our life we're facing situations that have to do with the choices that we have made. And that's where we find David at the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20. It really is an amazing story because finally Absalom's revolt is thrown down. He dies and King David is just tore up. He's destroyed by the death of his son. And you remember that, someone, uh, that, that uh, Joab and, and, and all these guys had to go to him and they had to say, listen, King David, you got to quit mourning. You got to quit making it seem as if the men who killed your son, that they had done something wrong, that the men who had to go and fight for you, that somehow they did something shameful. Get out there and encourage your soldiers and let them celebrate a victory. And remember, David then had to present himself to all of Israel. He wasn't going to be king by force. But the northern ten tribes, they said, we want David to be king. Remember, Judah was the holdout. Remember, his own people were the ones. Remember, they got behind Absalom. They were the ones that raised up an army that almost destroyed King David. And they were very slow to come back under David's leadership. And remember, David looked at a man named Amasa. He was the one who actually uh, was the commander of the army that tried to defeat David. In a conciliatory move, he looked at Amasa and he said, listen, I'm going to show you how much it's forgiven, how much we've put this water under the bridge, how much I'm telling you I'm not going to hold against you what you did. He took their commander and he put him over Joab. Remember that. And in that moment, all of Judah said, you know what, we want you to be king. Judah came around King David at the end of chapter 19. And as David was coming back into Jerusalem, he was surrounded by his brothers, by the tribe that was closest to him. And I want you to remember that the tribes of Judah, or the tribes of Israel, it wasn't just Judah. There were 12 tribes that made up the sons of Israel. Remember that they were a larger people group. They weren't just a random 12 tribes. This whole group was a family in the lineage of Abraham. And so when Judah had the privilege to walk in King David. Of course, the 10 northern tribes, they were like, wait, 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 wait a minute. Why do you get the privilege of walking the king in? Why does it seem like you're his favorite? We were the ones that welcomed him back before Judah did. We were the ones who fought for him when Judah didn't fight for him. We were the ones that should have the honor of walking the king back. You see what happens even in family, right? And it's so interesting because the ten northern tribes are saying this to Judah. And Judah says, well, why would we not? We are brothers to him. Literally, we are the closest family as the tribe of Judah to the king. And Israel's response is, listen, I thought we were one nation. Northern Israel makes up ten tribes. You just make up one part of those tribes. We make up ten parts of those tribes. And you can see that more and more they began to fight. You can see that already at the end of David's leadership, there's the fractures that will split the northern 
and the southern kingdom. It wasn't in Solomon's lifetime. It wasn't after Solomon's death that this division began to happen in the kingdom of Israel. It was literally and actually even at the end of David's reign, we begin to see this division coming about. And it's so tragic because as David is coming in to rule over Israel again, they welcomed him. And as he is about to enter into Jerusalem, something unthinkable happens. When we talk about the sword not departing, I don't know about you, but I've learned in life that as soon as you get through one difficulty, what happens? Doesn't it seem like there's another one just waiting around the corner? I, mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like many times it's hard to get our breath. It's hard to come up from under the raging waters to draw a breath before the next waves begin to hit us. And that's exactly what's going to happen to King David, because in chapter 20, look at what it says. It says, now a worthless fellow. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want my name put after that statement in the Bible, okay? It's going to say that there is this worthless fellow who happened to be there. So while the children of Israel are arguing over who's going to lead the king in, there is a man there that has an opportunity to do one of two things. He can either be a uniter or he can be a divider, right? In that moment, he can either help build up the kingdom of God because God has said, David is my king. David is the one anointed to sit on the throne. Or he can selfishly choose to say, you know what? Don't follow David. Follow me. If you want to know what makes a man worthless, it's when he lives a life of selfishness. You weren't made to live for you. Do you realize that? And I let that thought sink in a second, because most of us need the reminder that the world doesn't revolve around us. Most of us need the reminder that, you know what, we live not for our own glory, but for another's glory. And the reality is, if you really want to live a life that is blessed, you've got to live a life like Jesus Christ lived, where his main priority was not my will, but whose will? His father's will. Uh, that number one, he lived for his father. He lived for God. Whatever God said to do, whatever God said to say, wherever God said to go, his attitude, Jesus said, then that's where I'm going to be. That's who I'm going to be. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to say. That was the heartbeat of his life. And then secondarily, do you realize that he lived his life for you? He endured suffering for you. He, de he, he, he died and he bled on a cross on Calvary for you. He didn't live his life for himself, for what made himself feel good, for what really uh, moved ahead. If you think about it, he said, listen, I have my own will, right? I, I have these thoughts of what I would like to do. But when God said, no, my will is the cross, my will is that you would give your life a ransom for all of these sinners, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't do the selfish thing? But he did the most selfless thing a man could do. He gave his life. You see, what we need to realize about Sheba is that what made him worthless was the fact that he could not see beyond himself. It says, this worthless fellow happened to be there whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and he said, so while they're already struggling in this argument, he stands up and says, we have no portion, David. Nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. So he's basically saying, let's go, Israel. Let's separate from the tribe of Judah. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king. From the Jordan even to Jerusalem. Then David came to the house of Jerusalem, and the king took ten or took the ten women, the concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and he placed them under guard. He provided them with sustenance, but he did not go into them, and, he sh and so they were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. Then the king said to Amasa, Call out all the men of Judah for me within three days, and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to call the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which he had been appointed or which had been appointed to him. And I want you to see this morning, number one, a sad display of selfishness. We've already talked about the fact that Sheba is this sad display of selfishness, that all of us left to our own devices. Have you ever noticed that we promote ourselves over anything else? 
That even in the church of Jesus Christ, have you ever seen where people are going to promote self over the opportunity for unity? It's interesting because men like Sheba, they said that they wanted to honor King David. We want you to be our king. But in the moment that things didn't go the way they expected them to go, the moment the crowds began to turn, you see how quickly all the other people turned? All it took was one weak man to turn a whole crowd into weak men. The same is true on the other side. You show me a man with steel in his back, and I'll show you a man that probably can lead other men to have steel in their backs and to do what is the right thing. But Sheba had the choice, and he chose not to support the king, not to go after the things that God was going after, but he selfishly interjected himself and was probably hoping that he would be king. Folks, we could probably rightly say that it's in the nature of man to divide. I want you to realize that even as believers in Jesus Christ, while you have the new nature within you, you still wrestle with the flesh, don't you? Have you ever noticed that it's much easier to divide than to unify? To gossip than to support. If there's one thing we know about man, man is... Fickle. You've realized that, right? That today, when we say that man is fickle, today you can be applauded and tomorrow you can be run out on the rail. Have you ever noticed that about man? That what they're happy about today, they could be completely unhappy about the same thing tomorrow. David is being rejected again. I'm sure that David cannot believe what is happening to him in this moment. He had to be thinking, you know what, thank goodness, Absalom, this whole thing is over. Thank goodness that I'm entering into Jerusalem unified. Israel's with us. Judah's with us. And all it took was one man to stand up and to tear down rather than to build this kingdom. And now David finds himself in the exact same place again. Such a sad display of selfishness. Now, I want you to realize that in life, if you haven't realized it, there's three types of people that are around you. And not only are there three types of people that are around you, but you have to answer the question of these three people, which one am I? Because let me tell you, for sure, you can guarantee that there are people, and it is going to be a few people that are around you, not the many, Not the crowd, it'll be the few that, you know what, the first type of person that I want to talk to you about is the type person that they will stay with you. They will help you in difficult times. They're not fair weather friends. They're true friends that stick by your side when things are good, when things are difficult. If everyone else walks away, they're the ones that are still standing with you. Folks, it's hard to find friends like that, isn't it? Let me ask a question. Are you a friend like that? Because there's another type of person out there. Not the one that will run to you for help, but there's also that type of person that's in your life that when troubling times come, they run away from you. And then, of course, you have the third type of person. They're the very person that's bringing trouble upon you. And folks, David is reliving this over and over and over and over again. And you can imagine how disheartened he has to be that he's being rejected, that now he has another civil war that is going down in front of him. But I want to ask the question, should it surprise us as believers when troubles come? Should it surprise us when the enemy is working against what God is trying to accomplish and do? All I hear is in the back of my head the words of 1 Peter ringing out, why are you surprised when these various trials come upon you? Why are you surprised? Didn't Jesus say that, you know what, they hated me, they're going to hate you? When you look at the life of Jesus, if anyone should have been supported, if anyone should have been, you know, had the crowds come up behind him and come up and support him and come up under the kingdom that he was preaching and support that kingdom more times than not, think about the crowds that would want to follow Jesus. And when he said something like, look, I'm not going to feed you anymore. You've come for miracles. You've come to be fed. And I'm not going to do that anymore to think that thousands of people would turn and walk away from him leaving him again with the twelve. Over and over and over, you see Jesus 
struggling. Jesus rejected. Jesus having to look and realize that, you know what, there aren't many who are going to stand by me. Even the Apostle Paul at the end of his life, I find it interesting in 2 Timothy that at the end of his life, even the Apostle Paul, if you would think if there was someone you could come around, if there was someone you could support, if there was someone who had given his life for so many, had done so many things for the churches, that you would think that at a trial, when he needed someone to be beside him, that Paul would have had an army of people standing there. Some of the last words we have of the Apostle Paul out of 2 Timothy, they simply said that at my trial there was no one who stood with me. And then he finishes, praise God, with, but the Lord stood with me. Folks, sometimes, and I would say many times in life, it seems like that's the truth for us. This is where you find out whether your calling is true. David knew he was king. David knew that God had placed him on the throne. David was amazed that even with the sin in his life, that when God forgave him, rather than killing him, rather than taking him off the throne, that he generously and and, and very patiently and with compassion and forgiveness and grace and mercy, he left David on the throne because there were going to be times in David's life that that calling, that knowledge of God's will is the only thing that would probably keep him from running away from the throne. A sad display of selfishness. But I also want you to see a brutal display of betrayal. If you notice in the text, Amasa comes back into the scene. He was the one that David put over the army of God because he wanted the people of Judah to come back and support him as king. And they were concerned. Listen, we we betrayed you with Absalom. How do we know you're not going to kill us? That had to be their thought. And he says to them, listen, I'm going to put your commander over my army. We are good. But you got to remember, when he got over the army, he was replacing somebody, and that somebody was Joab. Now, we know some things about Joab. Joab is a man that doesn't fear God. He doesn't really fear the king. If you remember, there were times that the king would say to Joab, don't kill this person. If you remember, Abner. When Saul died, Abner was the commander of Saul's army. And David made it clear, look, we're not going to go and wipe out the family of Saul. We're not going to go wipe out all of his leaders. But you know what? Joab went and he found Abner and he killed him. If you remember, David said to Joab, when you find my son Absalom, we've got to defeat the army, but I don't want you to kill my son, Joab. You remember those words? And when Joab found Absalom, he had every chance to take him alive, but what did he do? He killed him. And now this same man stands before And I want you to understand, because it gets lost in this text. You almost think that these are unrelated people, that that Amasa has nothing to do with Joab, and Joab has nothing to do with Abishai, and they have nothing to do with David. I want you to understand that David had surrounded himself. The commanders of these armies, they were not just friends, they were family members of King David. These are the nephews of King David, which make them cousins to each other. So when we read these stories, like we're going to read here in a minute, this is cousin killing cousin. This is family killing family. These are men that are supposed to trust each other. And there's no worse betrayal in life, is there, than the betrayal of a close friend, or even worse, the betrayal of family. So Amasa has been told, you know what, in three days, we've got to go find this dude Sheba and we've got to kill him because if we don't go get him now, he's going to get behind a walled city. He's going to get someplace we can't get to him and he's going to turn the people of Israel against King David. We've got to go get him. And that's what they planned to do. That's what they were interested in going and doing. So David looks at his commander, this new one that he put in place. He said, three days, bring an army back to me because we're going to go after him. Well, three days pass and guess what? He's not there. Three days pass and he hasn't been able 
to raise up an army yet, and he's probably still out there trying to get it done. But when the deadline comes and goes, David doesn't wait for Amasa. He looks at Joab, and he looks at Abishai, and he says to them, listen, I want you to go. And he starts with Abishai, because Abishai, you got to remember, these two men had different jobs. Abishai was the commander of his personal bodyguard. Remember the 600 mighty men of David? Most of them were, were from other tribes like Philistines. And remember, they're all the ites that are mentioned. These men weren't even Israelites, but they were committed to King David. And he starts with Abishai, and he says, take those 600 men and go and start pursuing. And Joab is going to also go, and he's going to have the normal army with him and some other men of the army. And they're all going to go, and they're going to meet together, and they're going to go after Sheba. And that's where the story picks up. And look at what happens. It says, and David said to Abishai in verse 6, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do to us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him so that he does not find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. So Joab's men went out after him. Okay, so he's speaking to Abishai. Joab takes it upon himself to take an army that he can muster and go out with him as well. Now listen to what happens. He says, Along with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men, they went to Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And when they, were in, when they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet him. Now Joab was dressed in his military attire, and over it was a belt with a sword and its sheath fastened at the waist. And as he went forward, it fell out. Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword which was in Joab's hand. So he struck him in the belly with it, poured out his inward parts on the ground, and did not strike him again, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, the, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now there stood by him one of Joab's young men who said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the men saw that all the people stood still, he removed Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone came by and stood still. Man, you want to talk about betrayal. Amasa wasn't king over Israel's army because he asked to be, was he? I'm sure he didn't expect it. I'm sure that he thought David would kill him. I mean, Amaz is just lucky that he had his life. He must feel so blessed that not only was he allowed to live, but David left him in leadership. And he finally mustered up the men that he was trying to muster up for three days. He goes and he meets Joab and understand what occurs here, that he has no idea that Joab, who lost his job because of him, is about to take his life. And Joab is sneaky about it. Rather than fighting him face to face, he leans over. He allows his sword to fall out of its sheath. Why? Because he needed the sword in his hand. And listen, if a brother walks up to you with a sword in his hand, you're kind of like, whoa, dude, hey, easy. What's, you know, you, you want to know what's going on. But Amaza watched that thing fall out. It's natural for a man, once he drops his sword, to what? Bend down and pick it up. He's got it not in his fighting hand. He's got it in his left hand. And he walks up to Amaza and listen, it was a brotherly thing back in that day. Don't think when he grabbed him by his beard, it's like, hey, what's up? And our, you know, that would be weird if I walked over to John and just snatched his beard and kissed him on the cheek, right? It was normal back then. And back then, it was actually a sign of affection between two men, a sign of respect to grab that beard. And he just walked up and, and went to kiss him on the cheek. And when he went to do it, Amasa had no fear he wasn't thinking that he'd be killed, and he took that sword that had dropped that was now in his left hand, and he basically gutted him with it. Now put yourself in the position of everybody else that was standing there, who just witnessed this brutal display of betrayal. Who do you follow now? Do you imagine what it was like to be one of the men of Israel at this point? There is the leader that King David said is to lead the army. He's wallowing on the ground in his own blood. And it says that as Joab and as Abishai and the young man said, hey, come follow us if you're for David. And the men are trying to figure out what to do. They start walking down the road after these men and all they can see is, 
him laying on the ground in his own blood. And it says that every time a man would come up, they just, they just stood still. They didn't know what to do. And so what does the young man do? It says that he just grabs a blanket, he pulls him off the road to go and die, and he just covers him. So then now, I mean, you know how it is in life, right? Just throw it under the rug, just cover it, nobody will know. Isn't that how we treat sin over and over and over and over again? But I want you to know something. You can't treat sin that way. You do understand that, right? What happened in that moment is going to have ramifications in Joab's life. It's going to have ramifications in the life of Israel, this sin that has just been committed. Because I want you to know that we serve a God who is still serious about sin. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or you're not a believer. He wants sin dealt with. And folks, let me tell you something. You don't deal with sin by just pulling a blanket over it and dragging it off into the field. The Bible says that if you want God's blessing in your life, then you need to confess your sin. And you know what the beauty is for us who are on this side of the cross? That if we confess our sin, what does it say about God? That He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of our sins and He will do what? He will cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Isn't that a great promise? How many of us are living life like Joab and Abishai and that young man? Folks, it might be the reason why it's so hard for you to lead at home. It might be the reason why it's so hard to lead at work. It might be the reason why it can be so hard to lead in a church body. Because, folks, let me tell you something. If you're living a hypocritical life, if you're living a life of sin like that, and you think that all I've got to do is just throw a blanket over it, no one sees, no one notices... And I'm going to have God's blessing in my life. And people are going to want to follow me. No, they're not. Sometimes that's exactly what our children are doing to us. Is they're walking up and they're seeing all of our sin. And they're looking at us. And they're looking at our sin. And they're looking at us. And they're looking at our sin. And we just want to come up and just say, well, honey, you know, you guys are just young. You don't understand. This is what it is to be an adult. You know, adults watch movies like this. Adults see things like this. Adults do things like this. And the whole time, what are our kids doing? Folks, this isn't the way to live, but isn't this, hasn't this become the story of Israel at this point? Is this not David's story too? I got her pregnant, what's the answer? Repent? No. I'm going to try to get her husband home, make him think he did it. And then when that doesn't work, we'll throw the ultimate blanket over and we'll just kill him off. Let me ask you a question. He may have hid it from men. Did he hide it from God? Do we not serve a God that is more than willing and absolutely going to do what with our sin? He's going to expose it. And folks, that's why the invitation is so gracious where God says, listen, why would you do that? Why would you make me have to expose it when I've told you, you know what? Why don't you come to me and confess it? Why don't you repent of that sin and actually turn from it? Why don't you get your heart right? But we're left with betrayal at this point. But then we come to a thirdly, a wonderful display of wisdom. Kind of out of the blue comes this response from a woman that's about to be introduced to the story. It says, as soon as his body was removed from the highway... Everybody just passed on, and Joab uh, followed Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And it says, now he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel. So he's traveling north, is all that means, even to Beth Makkah. And all the Barites, and, uh, and they were gathered together and also went after him. They came and they besieged him, meaning Sheba, and Abel, Beth Makkah. And they set up a, uh, uh, I'm sorry, and they cast up a siege ramp against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. Then a wise woman called from the city, Here, here, place, or I'm sorry, please tell Joab, come here, that I may speak with him. 
And he approached her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he said, Yes, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she spoke, saying, Formerly they used to say, They will surely ask advice at Abel, and thus they ended the dispute. I am of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You are seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Joab replied, Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown down to you over the wall. Then the woman wisely came to all the people and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they threw it to Joab. He blew the trumpet and they dispersed from the city each to his tent. Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. Another thing that was on display here was a faithful remnant in Israel. You realize that there's always a faithful remnant. Now, when everything else is going awry and everything else is such a mess, there are those that are seeking to follow the Lord, seeking to honor God. And here we come across a very wise woman because Sheba has taken to hiding into a city that was not his own. He knew to find a fortified city because it would be hard for David's army to get to him, to kill him. He could raise up an army. He could continue to grow this revolt But David quickly came after him and they began to siege the city. Now the thing about sieging a city is this. It's very, very hard on the city that is being besieged. When a city was besieged like this, they would try and it would take often sometimes up to a year to get a ramp that could be built to the top of these huge walls so that they could go in and get beyond the gates and destroy the city or get whoever they've been seeking. And it's horrible for the people that live in there because once the army surrounds the city, what's the greatest way to defeat it? Sometimes they would come and just open the gates. You know why? Because they were starving to death. They didn't have Walmarts in the city. They didn't have sources of water many times inside the city walls. If you were smart, you had a spring inside your city because at least that way they couldn't cut you off from the water. But most of them would be cut off from their food inside the walls of this city. And listen, they were besieging the city. They were wreaking havoc on this town. And this woman, she realized and she comes to her senses and and, and grasps the gravity of what's happening. You're about to kill all of these people. Why? Because you want one man. Now, why don't you tell us who the one man is that you're looking for? Why don't you tell us what he did? And listen, if he's here, we'll go find him and we'll make sure that you get him. And so she says, listen, they're, they're all besieging the city. They're wreaking havoc on the walls. And she just calls out and says, hey, anybody know where Joab is? Could you please send him down to my section of the wall for a moment? And he goes down there, and I love the way that she approaches him. She says to him, tell me how it is that you don't know the word of God is what she's getting at. Because the word of God says in Deuteronomy to all the ones who would lead Israel, that when you go and you besiege a city, that's literally the way it's termed over in the book of Deuteronomy. When you go and you besiege a city, he says, you know what you should do first? Try to seek peace with that city. Try to make peace before you level a city, before you kill everyone within a city, before you do what you're about to do. Why don't you stop and see if you can make peace before all of these people have to die? Now, when he was referring to that, he was talking about the enemies of Israel. He wasn't even talking about if you're fighting your brother. And this woman wisely comes to him and says, listen, not only have you not done that, but he says, she says, we're family. We're of the children of of Israel. Are you telling me that you're going to come in and you're going to wipe out an entire town looking for one man? Don't you realize, and listen to her words, she says, don't you realize that we as the people of this town, the people of Israel, that we are the inheritance of God, you're going to wipe out God's chosen people so that you can get one man. Now, this woman knew beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that what Sheba had done was wrong. She was not unwilling to seek justice. She was not unwilling to do the right thing. What this man had done was worthy of death. And listen, Sheba ran into that city and he probably thought, you know, as long as I'm behind this wall, they can't get me. But let me tell you, there's no wall big enough, great enough, high enough, strong enough for you to hide behind if you're working against God's will. You do realize that. When we stand in front of God's plans and God's will, it's literally like we're standing before a freight train that's coming at us 60 miles per hour. Put your hand out. What's still going to happen? What's going to happen? You're going to get run over. You think you can thwart God's plan? See, that's what the devil hasn't realized. Keep working. Keep fighting. But you know what's going to happen, right? The end of the story has already been told. That if you fight against God, are you going to win or are you going to lose? Are you going to win or lose, church, every single time? And it begs the question, why do we do it? Why do we do it? He thought, I'm safe behind these walls. But now this woman says, oh, you looking for Sheba? That's what he did? Listen, tomorrow we'll chunk his head over the wall. Now, some of you are sitting here today going, this is really violent today, what we're talking about. It is, I'm sorry, it's the Bible. I would say send them to children's church, but they're studying the same chapters. So, we got to read the Bible. And she goes and she talks to all the people in the town, and they all come to the same conclusion. Yeah, if he's betrayed the king, if he's disloyal, if he's starting a civil war, they took his head, they threw it over, and guess what? That was the end of it. Thankfully, this woman had the wisdom to do what was right. And folks, I'm telling you, it seems harsh what she did. But let me tell you, the, 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 th think back to Jesus in the New Testament. What did he say about sin? What happens? Sin is like a cancer. Sin is like, it's something that spread. It ensnares. It entraps. And folks, I'm telling you, sin does what it always does. It kills. And that's why the Bible says that when you have a sin in your life and it says that your right eye offends, what should you do to your right eye? It says pluck it out. Seems extreme, doesn't it? It says that if your right hand is offended, what should you do? Chop it off. Why? Because he's saying it's like gangrene. It's better to lose one eye than to what? Than to let that spread and destroy the whole body, the whole man. And he says that's what sin is like. Sometimes we think, you know what, it's such a sacrifice to forsake sin. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You don't understand. If you don't forsake that sin, that cancer, you think it's small, you think it's insignificant, you think it's not going to get you in the end, you are wrong. And you are going to ultimately realize that sin does what it promised to do. It will steal, kill, and destroy. And if you don't get rid of it, then guess what's going to happen? See, that's what this woman was willing to do. Into chapter 21, it simply says, and, and what you have to understand about chapter 21 is we're switching gears here. And the reason we're switching gears, and I have to tell you we're switching gears, is because this actually probably happened early in David's life and ministry, not late. This probably is not in chronological order, which begs the question, why is it here? And I believe the reason that it is here in this place, in this time, in the Word of God, is it is a reminder to all of us. And it's a reminder to the children of Israel at this place in their lives that, you know what, we have to remember that when we keep living in sin, betrayal, when we keep living in selfishness, when we forsake God, His will, His way, don't think for a second that God forgets those things and that he will be unwilling to judge even a nation. See, most of us don't want to think in terms like that. We, we want to think at best God deals with people individually. But do you realize that, no, God actually deals with a nation, that we as a nation could literally at this point in our history be sitting under the judgment of God, and rightfully so. How many babies have we murdered? How long have we lived under excessive materialism that pushes God out of the equation because money has become our God? Uh, 
we say that we're so concerned that, that the government has taken prayer and Bible study out of the schools. Let me ask you a question. We're living and acting as the church in America today as if they made a law that they took it out of our own homes. Your children, it, the greatest tragedy is not that they can't pray at school. It's that parents may not pray at home. It's not that they don't study the Word of God in classes. It's that we got Bibles that sit on our coffee tables and they get picked up on Sunday morning and that's it. And we're not teaching our children the Word of God. We're not teaching them who God is, what God has done. And we wonder why we're raising up a generation that is doing what they think is right in their own eyes. And do we honestly think that if we add God bless America to the end of the things we say that somehow that obligates God? And we live how we want? And we just throw on God bless America and now he's obligated? Folks, the only reason we say that America at this point is the best country in the world, it's because of our financial stability why we think that way. It doesn't have anything to do with our morality. It doesn't have anything to do with our commitment to God. It has nothing to do with ESPN. Wasn't that the ESPN thing? <laughs> you got to go. I'm praying for you, officer. What a tragedy when we get to the place in our lives that we think God is unwilling to judge the sinfulness of a people. What we see in the beginning of this chapter is a justifiable display of justice. That we don't take God and question the judgment that He has on His people. Listen to this. It tells of a story. It says, There was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So get the picture. David is sitting one day, and he's realizing that, you know what? This famine is getting more and more serious. And it wasn't just for a year, but it went into a second year, and it went into a third year. And David, knowing the word of God, he would have understood that God said to his people, that when these disasters and plagues come upon you, you might want to ask yourself the question, are you walking in my ways? Because he said, if you're obeying me, if you're not going right or left of my will, if you are choosing life instead of death, blessing instead of curses, he says, you know what? You're not going to have pestilence. You're not going to have famine. And David is sitting here, and what has he seen? And it makes him ask rightly the question, Lord, is there something I'm not seeing? Most times we never even get to that question. We just blame anything and everybody and chance and whatever else. No, when we're facing a lot of difficult times that seem excessive, we ought to start at the place of, Lord, if there is something in me, if there's something within your people that is dishonoring to you, that is causing this, show me. And you know what? He prayed that prayer and God said, indeed, David, there is a reason this famine has come. And it was something that most of the children of Israel had probably forgotten. A sin that they had committed, that they had probably covered, that they had just drug off into a field thinking that no one would notice and everyone would go on their merry way. But what did I tell you about God? And this is probably why it fits in the story, is that God doesn't forget. He's a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. And he will make us deal with our sin. And what happened with the children of Israel? They had a covenant with the people called the Gibeonites. You may not remember who they are. Back in the book of Joshua, when they were going to destroy Jericho, they were about to level all the cities of Canaan. And word was out that God was with these people. He had defeated the Egyptians. They were coming into the land of Canaan, and they were about to wipe everybody out. And the Gibeonites did something that was very tricky. And they got away with it. They came, actually, to the Israelites, and they looked like they had traveled a huge distance. They probably were a little stinky. Their clothes were torn. Their shoes were worn out. And they made it look like they had traveled from a far distance. And they said, listen, we're not one of your enemies that lives right here in this area. We're from a far distance, way past those mountains. And we've heard of your testimony. We've heard that God is with you and that you're about to lay waste to all of this. And they said, will you make a treaty with us? And Joshua thinking, you know what? These people aren't part of the people that God's called us to destroy. He didn't pray about it. He didn't ask God. 
and he was fooled. And he made a covenant with the people. And as soon as he made the covenant, God shows up and is like, Joshua, what are you doing? Didn't I tell you you had to go and destroy all these cities? And they're like, no, these people came from afar off. And God's like, no, they came from right over there. And now you've made a covenant with them. And if we make a promise, what does God expect? He expects us to keep it. Aren't you glad that we have a God who is passionate about keeping covenants? Because if he didn't keep covenants, guess what? We would be without hope. It was his covenants to us that he kept even in spite of ourselves. He loved us when we didn't love him. He was faithful when we weren't faithful. All because of promises he made to us through men like Abraham and Moses and David, right? And he expects us to keep our covenants. And so the Gibeonites were allowed to live, but it said that they would have to work in labor for the Israelites as they built their kingdom. And they had lived in peace all of that time. The Gibeonites never resisted the Israelites. They were Amorites, but they never stood against what God was doing in the midst of his land. They lived at peace with Israel. And at some point, what this text tells us is that Saul, for whatever reason, remember by the end of Saul's life, he was almost like a, uh, like a paranoid schizophrenic. I mean, he really looked like he was having serious issues. He didn't trust his son. He didn't trust David. He didn't trust anybody. Remember, he killed off priests. He was laying waste to everybody. Whether he saw them as a threat, I have no idea. But he went into the Gibeonite cities and he destroyed them. And he killed many of these people. And you know what? There was nobody there to question Saul. There was nobody there that stood up to Saul. There was nobody there that said, we shouldn't do this. We made a promise to these people. They live at peace with us. And when you show up with an army, you're going to go in there and destroy them. They're not even going to defend themselves because they're thinking you're coming in peace because that was your promise. And Saul wiped them out. Killed many of them. And God says to King David, that's why the famine is here. Because this is going to be made right. And literally it says, David said to the Gibeonites in verse 3, What should I do for you? How can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put to death any man uh, to, de to death in Israel. And he said, I will do for you whatever you say. So he says to them, tell me what will make this right. He doesn't come as a king. He almost comes as a servant saying, I need to make this right before God. What do I need to do? He's asking the Gibeonites. Now, what is so interesting to me is that the Gibeonites, they show a compelling display of character here. We see that God is judging the nation. We see that God is, is bringing about this famine to get the attention of Israel to make right this sin that they have covered and they haven't dealt with it. And we have this compelling display of character from the very people who Saul sought to destroy. You say, where is the character? Well, it's very simple. Number one, you don't see anywhere where the Gibeonites lobbied for their justice, do you? This story actually isn't even in the scriptures. It went unnoticed. They didn't kick. They didn't scream. They didn't call for justice. They didn't go try to get another army to join them to hurt Saul and his family. They did none of that. In fact, we don't even have it recorded in the scriptures, the incident that God is talking about here. But we know what happened. Not only did they not lobby and seek justice of their own, and, and let's be honest, they were living in a better way than the Israelites. They were trusting God for the vengeance, right? They were trusting God to make right what was wrong. They didn't go after it themselves. But then secondarily, notice when he says you can have anything. In our Sue Happy culture, in America, if you put in front of someone, you were done wrong, anything you want, tell me, what are we probably going to say? I need compensation. I'm going to dial 1-800-NEED-A-LAWYER, right? And we're going to go and try to bilk for as much money as we can possibly get because surely money is the answer to justice, right? No. They had the choice. It probably would have been just given to them, and they didn't take it. They walked away from it, said, look, we're not looking for the money of Israel. And then they do something even greater they said, you know what, who, who are we to come up and say that we're just going to kill random Israelites? We're not going to make this right by going and slaughtering 
thousands or millions of your people to make right the wrong that was done. Isn't it amazing that when they had the choice, David, they could have said anything. They said that would, I mean, think about it. That would have been vengeance. Take an innocent life for an innocent life. Kill a child because a child was killed. Even they had the character to step back and go, that's not right and that's not who we are and that's not what we're going to do. And so David says, so what do you want to do? And you know what they said? Give us the seven sons of Saul. Now, you're sitting there thinking, I thought they were already dead. They are. That word sons actually uh, constitutes not just sons, but grandsons and great-grandsons. And he asked for seven lives of men that I believe wholeheartedly probably were involved in the slaughter in the first place. These men would have been of age. These men would have been part of probably what occurred in that day. Remember, just as David and his army, Jonathan, all of the sons of Saul, remember, they were commanders in the army. No doubt these grandsons were commanders in the army as well. And he says, I want seven of the sons of Saul, because that will be justice. They were the ones that perpetrated this injustice on our people. I don't want money. I'm not looking for revenge. I just want justice. Isn't it crazy that even in the land of Israel, the Gibeonites were living with more character than the Israelites were? So far, everything else we've been reading in the last chapters of this book We don't see any justice. We see nothing but injustice. David says to them, then you'll have your wish. Now David, remembering that he made a covenant, who did he not surrender to them? Mephibosheth. If you remember, it says he spared Mephibosheth because he was the son of Jonathan and because he made an oath to the Lord that he would take care of Mephibosheth. And listen, he wasn't going to break that covenant because if you break a covenant, it causes problems, doesn't it? If you break a promise, it causes problems. He says, I can't give you Mephibosheth. This Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, he says, but there are seven other sons and grandsons and great-grandsons that I can give to you that I believe wholeheartedly were probably involved in it. And he gives them over and it says that they hanged them. That word hanged there, whether they literally hung them or whether that means they displayed their bodies, that word hang usually means to display the bodies after the execution or after the death. And so what happened, however they were executed, it could have been hanging, but what it means is that they took those men's bodies and they stuck them out there as a display. And that's what the Gibeonites requested. That's what it was that they wanted, that what had happened to them was wrong and justice had been served. And it says that those bodies hung out there for almost six months, and finally the rains came again, and the the famine was lifted. Now that leads us to another part of this story that's very interesting, and that's the lamenting display of love. The lamenting display of love. We've got a justifiable display of justice, a compelling display of character, and a, a lamenting display of love. And what we find is a mother who is broken. In verse 10, it says, Rispa, the daughter of Aod, took sackcloth and spread it over herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until it rained from the sky. She allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. When it was told of David that uh, she, a concubine of Saul, had done this, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, and the men of, to the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshan where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul and Gilboa. He brought up the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his, uh, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zela, the grave of Kish, his father. Thus they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. This woman to me represents so much of the tragedy of what was occurring needlessly in Israel. I want you to think for a moment. Here is a woman lamenting the death of her sons, the death that was a result of sin, a result of choices. But nonetheless, the landscape of Israel at this point in its history was a wasteland of lamenting mothers. And she loved her sons so much that even though they received the judgment that was due them, she sat out there for six months to make sure of one thing, 
Normally the bones would have been buried or the bodies would have been buried within a day of the death. She sat out there for six months and literally made sure that not a bird landed on them, that not a beast tried to eat the flesh off those bodies. By the time the six months was up, they had almost become skeletal remains. And David, with compassion, sees this woman lamenting over the death of her sons. And he finally does what he had needed to do. He finally went and got the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan, whom he loved greatly. Both of those men he loved. And he took the bones of those seven sons, and he finally had them properly buried. You can see the, the nation lamenting under sin. Look at our nation, folks. Do you see what the weight of sin is doing to us? Do you hear the voices of lamenting mothers who've lost their children to drug abuse, who've lost their children to alcohol abuse, who've lost their children to gangs, who've lost their children to thing after thing, to wars? And the last display that we see is a worrisome display of weakness. Because in all of this, what the people are probably hoping is that a king will rise up who will save them from all of this tragedy. And what they have found is that even though David sits on the throne, guess what's happening to David? He's getting older. And what that means is that as he's getting older, he's also getting what? He's getting weaker. And this chapter actually ends with a story of four boys that are coming after David. And if you remember, Goliath was the first victory that David had. He killed the giant with one stone. He had five stones. Scholars believe in some state that maybe he was looking at the four big boys that were standing beside Goliath, giants in their own right, his sons. Because this story finishes with there were four giants who were the sons of Goliath, and they wanted to kill David. In the midst of the turmoil, that Israel was going through, they saw an opportunity to defeat the Israelites again. And so they attacked. And it says that David went out to go and fight this giant, the first son of Goliath. And guess what happened? It looked like he was about to get whipped. And it says that Abishai had to come forward. And it was Abishai that slew the giant. And they looked at King David. And you can see it there in the text, what it says about King David. Literally, it says, Abishai, the son of Zariah, in verse 17, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. And the men of David swore to David, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. You see, where was their hope? It was in David. But let me tell you what was going to happen to David. He was going to die. Because that's what happens to all men, right? Do you realize that if you put your hope in men, you're going to always be disappointed? Do you realize that every pastor you've ever had, he was just an interim pastor? You realize that, right? That's not my pulpit. That pulpit was filled by men far greater than me, and there will be men after me who will fill that pulpit. Your children are going to one day, hopefully, it goes this way, that you are put in the ground by your children. Because ultimately, you're not their hope. You're not their salvation. Never forget that the story of Samuel is a stark reminder that you know what? Kings and kingdoms, they come and go, don't they? But only one thing stands forever, and that's God. For us as the New Testament believers, that's Christ, His Son. He and He alone is our hope. Not a man behind a pulpit. Not a parent. Not a boss. Not a government official. But the hope of Israel rested where the hope of Israel has always rested. And God tried to tell him this two kings ago. You don't need a man. What do you need? God said, you need me. Have you forgotten that, church? Where is your hope? So as the band comes this morning, I want you to simply ask yourself today, are you living a selfless life? 
Are you a man or a woman that, that is loyal? That you're using your life to build up, not to tear down, to unite, not to divide. That you're utilizing all that God has given to you to fulfill the purposes and plans of God. Are you willing to recognize this morning that I really do believe that the nation that we live in America probably is sitting more squarely under the judgment of God than the blessing of God. And by adding God bless America on the end isn't going to change the need that we have to repent. And when I say we, I mean us as the church first to repent as believers. Judgment, where does it begin? The Bible says, the New Testament says, it begins in the house of the Lord. And we've got to be sure that we're walking close to Jesus Christ, keeping the covenant, keeping the promise that He's given to us, that you know what, I can give you life and I can give you abundant life. I can conquer sin. I can conquer death. I can conquer the grave. You have an opportunity to live if you'll believe the promise. And so church, whatever God has spoken to you today, I pray that you'll take a moment and speak to Him. That you'll close your eyes and you'll pray and you'll ask the Lord to move today. In your heart, in your life, you don't leave this place saying, you know what, I hope someone gets saved. I hope someone joins the church. This hour was as much for you as anybody else in this room. So how will you respond to God? What will you say to Him after He has said so much to you this morning? pray. Ask Him to speak to you today. If you need Christ, I pray that you will come. Salvation can be yours if you'll repent and you'll believe that Christ died for your sins, was buried, and He rose again on the third day, conquering death, conquering the grave. Do you believe that Jesus died for you, for your sins? Will you follow Him today? Will you make Him Lord of your life? You can pray and ask Him to save you right where you are. And my hope is that if you do that, that while the band is playing, you'll come and say, Aaron, I've given my life to Christ. I want to be baptized. I want to follow Jesus and be part of this church. You have the chance to do that today.